It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility. The most important objective for our country right now is stability. Governments cannot eliminate volatility in markets. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics, your daily guide to the corridors of power. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Today, Twitter is an essential tool for politicians, but can it survive Elon Musk? We'll speak to the man who used to run the company's business in Europe. And with 10 days to go before Jeremy Hunt's autumn budget, we're on alert for hints of how the Chancellor plans to right the ship of state. Panmure Gordon's chief economist joins us to talk about what he's expecting and why he'd prefer if the ship didn't have any leaks. But first, there's a lot of churning in politics today with ongoing calls around bullying and Rishi Sunak's heading to COP, a conference he said he was too busy for. Yeah, but of course, the also thing that we're talking about, too, is that other essential tool to many in, in British politics, which is, of course, Twitter. Uh, the What's really, I mean, every day now we're getting, you know, another twist in what Elon Musk's version of Twitter uh, looks like. On Sunday night, he pledged to tackle impersonators, uh, people who were pretending to be someone else and would be banned from the platform. The comedian Kathy Griffin, among those falling victim to that after she changed her name on Twitter to Elon Musk. So he didn't take very kindly to that. There's been a lot of backlash to this. I think a lot of opinions about what Elon Musk is doing to Twitter. Somebody described it on Twitter as like a substitute teacher losing control of the class. And then it's this question of, can we live without it? I don't know. I used to really, I I used to, I mean, I do enjoy opening Twitter and looking at it, which is one of the reasons why we talk about it so much. But I think you just told me that you couldn't sleep last night because you were looking at Twitter. Unearthing all of my secrets. But the it, it it is it I do feel like the tone has changed. I mean, definitely, you know what you see now is is not the same as what you have seen on a normal day on Twitter. Look, I think this might be a little bit too inside baseball, but I think we need to get our violin out for all those journalists and commentators who've quit their day jobs to write Substack newsletters, and now who's going to see them? Because Twitter 
is going to be losing followers potentially. You've got the former Financial Times editor Lionel Barber saying that he's going off to Mastodon. Get your violin out for Dominic Cummings because he might really be booted to the stratosphere of irrelevance now. Have you tried Mastodon yet? No, have you? I signed up to it, but I, I was too confused and then I just kind of gave up like yeah, a lot of ice. It's weird. Um, well, anyway, we'll see. Who knows what we'll be talking about next week. But of course, this is all playing out very publicly. There are also thousands of people who've lost their jobs as part of this. And now, incredibly, it seems that Twitter wants to hire some of them back. Sources saying that some were laid off by mistake, while others were let go before management realised that they were necessary to achieve features wanted by Elon Musk. Well, to talk about all of this, we're joined by Bruce Daisley, who was vice president of Twitter, worked at the company for eight years before he left at the start of 2020. Now, he's written two books on workplace culture, including Fortitude, which was published earlier uh, this year. Bruce, thanks very much for being with us. What do you make of how things have played out at Twitter uh, in the past couple of weeks? Well, it's proper Liz Truss energy, isn't it? Everyone's waiting for Jeremy Hunt to enter the room. Um, I think, you know, it's it, it feels chaotic. You know, the supply teacher metaphor that I think you gave before is a good one because it doesn't feel like there's a plan. And, you know, so often online, people are willing to construe Elon Musk as playing 4D chess. It's pretty evident, even witness the fact that he's trying to rehire some people who were fired on Friday. Um, It's pretty clear he doesn't have any more information than the rest of us. There's, There's an old adage in technology, which I think speaks to the hubris of technology. And it's called the programmer's credo. And it says, we do these things not because they are easy, but because we thought they would be easy. And, you know, Elon gives that impression. He gives that impression that late night, sitting alone in his little cabin that he he's meant to live in next to SpaceX, uh, late night, He's decided he's he's got all of the answers to this and he's just running up short each time when he tries them in the real world. Well, let's go back to your Jeremy Hunt, Liz Truss analogy. Who can save Twitter? I think, you know, I don't think personally it's beyond salvation, but if, if he appointed a chief exec, maybe someone with some cachet in the world of technology, um, then I think possibly, and and he said, this person's going to be in control. He could still, you know, have that Jeremy Hunt moment where he turns this around. Um, I think, you know, the critical thing, what you've witnessed and you've described it there, is that there's a lot of people who don't see an immediate substitute for Twitter. Twitter's... Um, it, it surfaces a lot of entertaining content. It can often be the place that you discover new things. Twitter is very gossipy. You know, one of the things we often say about social media is that it gives us dopamine hits. But, you know, if we do get a dopamine hit from Twitter, it's generally not because someone has liked or retweeted our tweets. 99% of all the tweets that are read uh, are, are created by 1% of the creators. Twitter's more likely to give us that dopamine hit because of a pop of revelation. We love refreshing because something new has hit us or, you know, something (laughs) we've discovered something that we hadn't known before. It's that discovery. And I think, you know, that's the critical thing. A a network stand lives or dies by the people who are part of it. And so there is a network effect. One of the reasons why some of the right wing alternatives to Twitter haven't really taken hold is because people want to read as many voices as possible, not just Mm. an echo chamber of the people that agree with them. 
were the cuts, I mean, we've been spoken, focusing so much on, on the job losses, which of course played out on Twitter, which was its own form of, of sort of soap opera element of it. Was it inevitable that cuts of that sizes were needed, given Twitter's financial problems? Um, it's, it's worth saying that, you know, as, as recently as two years ago, Twitter was a 30% margin business, so 30% profit business. So, you know, it's not... Um, it, it's not something inevitable. Jack Dorsey has tweeted over the weekend that he wanted to apologise. It was all on him because he'd grown the company too quickly. The company had expanded. I think the, you know, we've seen other companies like Airbnb or Stripe in the technology space do layoffs with a slightly more classy way. And I, I suspect if you'd turned up to Twitter employees on Friday and said, "Look, um, we're <laughs> we're not going to have any." Force redundancies right now, but if you do want to leave, we'll happily give you a settlement. I suspect you would have uh, you would have been able to reduce the the workforce by ten twenty percent just through that. So, um, uh, look, I I don't think it was inevitable, but the the means of doing it certainly wasn't classy. We're also hearing about potential job cuts at Meta as well. Do you have concerns about people's data security and privacy in all this? Uh, I, I wouldn't say so, no. One, one of the first things that is protected in these environments is the, the, the high-profile stuff, the data security stuff. In fact, Twitter tweeted over the weekend, or someone called Joel Roth tweeted over the weekend, that all of the private information at Twitter had been locked down about a week ago. So um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that in particular. But obviously, it's a reflection of the fact that these... Tech stock values have collapsed. I think the value of Facebook has collapsed 80%. Uh, Snapchat has collapsed about 80% over the last 12 months. So we're, we're seeing that the whole space is experiencing a, a crush, really, a, a squeeze. And so I would expect more of it to come. These uh, people who've left Twitter now, I'm sure you know many of them. Will they stay in the tech sector, do you think? Or is that are they going to move on to something else? A big question, really. Um, You know, witness the fact that the Facebook job cuts are coming. Uh, (coughs) um, I'm not sure there's going to be as many jobs there. So there is going to be a crush. You know, simultaneous with this, we're still in the midst of what was styled the great resignation. Most companies are still carrying something close to a a 20% resignation rate. So most firms were losing people to to job swaps to different places anyway. There was a shortage of people. So look, you know, um, maybe these things will settle, at, settle, but I can imagine there will be collective anxiety for the people who are laid off at the moment. And the changes have spooked some of the advertisers. You've got several reportedly pausing their ad spend, including the owner of Cheerios and Lucky Charm cereals. We talked about Twitter being loss-making at the moment, but can Musk turn around this drop in revenue? Yeah, I mean, bringing some stability, like the the playbook, the Jeremy Hunt playbook, isn't a bad one to think about. He's created this unpredictability, this uncertainty, and not least, you know, he was doing things last week. He was trawling the American um, representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. You know, in the in the last twelve months, he's called. Senator Elizabeth Warren, a Karen, he's he said to Senator Bernie Sanders, I thought you were dead. So he's conducted himself in a slightly crass way. And I think 
one of the challenges he's going to find is he needs to bring some calm and stability. I would say if he brings in a tech veteran to run it, saying they've got full autonomy, that would be one of the ways to to steady the ship. But the, the next thing he he needs to do is just to to rein in his own um, his, his own unpredictability. Really, he just mm. needs to try and stay off the platform. And I suspect some of the people who invested in the product with him will be advising him the same. Do you think that in a year's time we'll still be seeing Twitter being so relevant to politics? Well, you know, one of the things that's come out in the discourse over the course of the last few days is a lot of people have said that there's no real clear alternative to it. So, you know, almost certainly if he gets things levelled in the short term, I I don't think products like Mastodon are going to be a direct substitute. Um, But, uh, you know, if he gets things levelled in the short term, then... Um, I, I think it can retain its relevance. One of the challenges he's going to have is that he's drawing himself to the attention of regulators around the world. We're just about to enter the, the two-year run-up to the presidential election. Uh, almost certainly either the House or the Senate will switch to Republican. And But both parties in America are talking about tech regulation. The EU, on the day that Twitter was acquired by Elon Musk, the EU passed a piece of regulation about mm. social media you know, if the UK has a functioning uh, legislative programme, then, you know, the UK has a piece of law going through Parliament as well. So these things, to some extent, are going to be taken out of the hands of billionaires. And that could add to Elon's troubles that, you know, if the burden of regulation means he needs to hire more people, then obviously it's going to make it harder for him to make a profit. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions. July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Now, there are 10 days to go till we find out what Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt plan to do with the budget. But given past experience, we might not need to wait that long. Of the three budgets with Rishi Sunak as Chancellor, all have had substantial amounts leaked to the press beforehand. Our next guest, Simon French, chief economist at Panmure Gordon, thinks that's a bad idea. Simon, why do you want journalists to starve? <laughs> I wonder whether you were going to approach it like that. Um, I don't want journalists to starve, and the particularly talented ones won't starve as a result of uh, what I think is has a visible chilling effect on UK economic activity at a time when it's pretty moribund to start with. This leak counter-leak. There are areas that are sensitive to changing tax rates, changing funding for infrastructure projects. This run-up to every fiscal event um, does move activity to the right. Now, you could say that's only for a couple of weeks, um, but this stuff is, if you like, symptomatic of a broader malaise that has overtaken UK politics, in my view, which is this rotating door between the special advisor community and the journalist community and they're all trying to keep each other happy by leaking stories i think it's a pretty um it's a bit uh, of a tale as old as time isn't it uh you want to take our sandwiches and now our retirement careers as well (laughs) (laughs) look that's a fair challenge that this has to some extent always gone on and that but I would counter that by saying it doesn't make it right. Mm. doesn't mean you can't, just because something has happened uh, in perpetuity, doesn't mean you can't identify its flaws and try and, if you like, rage against the tides, as I try to do sometimes on a social media platform of choice, which may be changing uh, shortly. Um, Stay tuned, yeah. Exactly. Uh, But the broader point that uh, Lizzie was making, which is that um, this leak culture up up ahead of a fiscal event has real-world implications that I do think if you're in the Westminster bubble, you sometimes lose sight of. The other side of that, though, is that, you know, Kwasi Kwarteng wreaked havoc with the mini-budget, partly because the policies weren't communicated or flagged and there were surprises in there. What's the right le- what's the right level of communication you should be doing? Mm-hmm. So I disagree with that. He didn't wreak havoc because he, he didn't socialise his policies. He wreaked havoc because he, him and his Prime Minister had spent the entire summer with an institutional scorched earth policy, slagging off the OBR, slagging off the Bank of England, sacking the top Treasury civil servant. There was an institutional uh, lack of warming up the market, indeed sidelining the important checks and balances that the market defaults to. The idea that 
if you like, the, the, it was the fact that the policies hadn't been uh, socialised that led to the market reaction, I think is a misinterpretation of history. OK, I want to come back to the meat of the budget mm. now that we've talked about the comms. But just before that, you mentioned about the sacking of Tom Scholar. Yeah. You and I talked about potential brain drain at the Treasury, mm. you know, the civil servants who work at the Treasury are the most employable in Whitehall. They have, they're the most likely to attract attractive pay packages yeah. to take them out of the civil service. Mm. Do you think that the change of leadership has stemmed that problem? Uh, yes, at the margin, albeit that those very talented um, civil servants, and they exist across Whitehall, it's not just to the Treasury, but they are disproportionately concentrated there in my experience um, they will not just look at the leadership at the top as a reason to stay or indeed to go but also the prospect of some pretty tight public sector pay settlements over a prolonged number of years and the cost of living is biting for uh, people across the economy be they work in the public sector or the private sector and while I doubt many of your listeners will shed tears necessarily for Treasury civil servants. It is about the opportunity cost when you're working in the public sector. And the opportunity cost in economic terms is potential employment in the in the city, out in industry, where there is, at least on um, headline pay, uh, a significant pay gap, which is likely, if you're, if you're in the Treasury making an assessment right now of your career earnings, that pay gap is likely to widen over the coming years based on what we know about public sector pay settlements. I do want, I do share Lizzie's enthusiasm for the main dish of this conversation. However, I'm still choking on my starter. So I just want to <laughs> ask you about the idea of, of is, is no communication the best policy in advance of a fiscal event or should some policies be flagged in advance or what's the right level of communication? Look, I, I favour no communication, um, but I also live in the real world, or I try to live in the real world as much Don't as I can. All, yeah. I, I try to. Um, but the broader point here is that if you are uh, going to, um, if you like, road test significant policy shifts, there is a quite a... Uh, long-dated process of doing that through green papers, white papers, consultations with industry. Um, but that process is well-managed. It is available to all, not just someone who you're, 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 you're mates with in the, uh, in the mainstream media. And therefore, you enable the market to respond to your direction of travel iteratively over time, and you identify potential flaws or unintended consequences in that. Now, I get the fact that governments are in a rush to do things, particularly a government with probably two years to run to a very different general election. But that is the way to avoid policy mistakes. It's not to run it on a Sunday and poll it on the Monday. So... Unfortunately, in your eyes, a lot of leaks have already happened. Hmm. From what we already know, do you get the sense that Jeremy Hunt is going to go too far in trying to plug the hole in the public finances because he's overcompensating in case growth underwhelms? Uh, I think that's the policy risk, yes. I, I would agree with that as a, uh, as a starter. But we are, uh, we shouldn't pretend that this stuff is easy. Uh, back when the OBR presented their first forecast to Kwasi Kwarteng, the, the former chancellor, they, it's well understood, I think, that the gap in the end, the medium term, was about £75 billion. A res the reaction of 
gilt market since Quasi Quarteng has been replaced, the U-turns that have taken place under Jeremy Hunt's stewardship, and indeed we mustn't lose sight of the falling price of wholesale gas and the pathway that will mean for both inflation and the cost of the energy price guarantee. All that means that that gap has, has probably shrunk by, I know it's quite vague, but some tens of billions, it's quite difficult to to, to quantify that in real time. Mm. But you're absolutely right. The risk is that having seen the pretty violent market reaction at the end of September to, if you like, fiscal largesse, um, it is human behaviour. It's it's well understood uh, behavioural bias to over respond in the opposite direction. So I think that probably is the policy risk right now. What, what do you make of the, the measures we've heard about so far? And do things like the pensions triple lock and the uprating of benefits need to go in the, the greater picture? Um, I haven't been a big fan of the triple lock. Um, I think uh, things like uh, locks and caps and the like are better suited for a keyboard than for making uh, public policy. Um, The issue here is that if you have got yourself into a situation where uh, markets are sceptical about your medium-term fiscal path, there are only certain policy levers that you can pull that raise money over that medium term. You can talk about growth enhancements, you can talk about pairing back infrastructure projects, but the reality is that it's it's mainly benefits and pay that release large amounts of cash in the short term, and that's why those leaks are probably the most plausible if you've got a government that's focusing on the near-term fiscal picture. And just coming back to comms, in the context of the Bank of England this time, Mm. was it irresponsible of the bank to publish such gloomy forecasts based on the market curve when officials were trying to make clear that they don't expect rates to rise as high as the market expects, but then clearly that nuance was lost on even some of the national newspapers. So if it's lost on them, surely the man on the street isn't going to be uh, positive about his outlook for the economy. Mm. Does it make it an, a self-fulfilling prophecy? Yeah. As usual, you've, you've nailed the issue here, which is actually there's parallels with what is going on in Westminster, with what is going on in the Bank of England here, which is um, the, the, the narrative does have real-world uh, impact. And it is fine to, if you like, as I said, sort of, disclaim your central economic forecast on publication, which they kind of did. They both disclaimed the market path for UK inflation and uh, and the, the growth outlook, but also the constant rate path was also disowned. Now, the problem is that every single media outlet then ran with what falls out of that forecast, which is the longest recession uh, in recorded history. And that frames expectations. I mean, when I go on the road in the coming weeks to speak to clients across the country, mainly wealth managers, uh, institutional investors, they will say, look, the Bank of England expect this eight-quarter recession, the biggest we've seen, you know, uh, in terms of duration uh, in recorded history. And that will determine the back the backdrop for asset allocation, for, um, you know, sentiment towards UK assets. Um, and if you don't agree with the, the rate path, then the economic variables that drive the headlines that come out of that also need to be disowned. Otherwise, you have, you know, a, an imbalance, don't you, between what the bank is saying and 
the takeaway from the general public that, that the frames investment decisions, uh, allocation consumption decisions. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.